the only one that remembers the Beatles. Hello, I'm Guy Garvey. Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle have joined forces for yesterday. We got them together to talk filmmaking. I always saw Trainspotting just as the Northern Four Weddings. Music. These songs were part of us. And a world without the Beatles. A world without the Beatles would be infinitely worse. The Yesterday Podcast, available from wherever you get your podcasts. Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen and with me is... Devendra Hardware. And we have a Slash Filmcast first today. Uh, we typically have Jeff Kanata on the show, but he's not here. He's at BlizzCon. He's got a, a busy week, uh, although he may be joining us in ad form. Uh, but Slash Filmcast first, this week we have uh, two guests on the show who are roommates, uh, and they are both <laughs> really into movies, so it must be fun to uh, to be each other's roommate. First up, we got Britt Hayes, who's just written a piece for Birth Movies Death. It's entitled Suspiria, Psychoanalyzing Luca Guadagnino's Rapturous Rebirth of a Horror Classic. Britt Hayes, welcome back to the Slash Homecast. Britt, how are you doing today? I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> just okay. Just okay to be I'm with the honest okay. response. Yeah, honest. You know, I, I feel know. like people should be more honest. But I'm fun employed now, so <laughs> I'm doing okay. <laughs> well, we, we appreciate that you uh, are making an appearance, and uh, I hope people can check out your latest piece at yeah. Birth Movies Death uh, about Suspiria. Uh, I read it today. It is very good. would recommend people check it out. Um, and joining us also is Brit's roommate, Lindsay Romaine, uh, who is a freelance writer at Slash Film Thrillist and Nerdist. Lindsay, welcome back to the Slash Film Guest. How are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. <laughs> Slightly better than okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that is good. It's fun to have you both on, and you guys are sharing a mic uh, to be on the show today. We really appreciate it, uh, and uh, it'll be fun. Today, what we're going to be doing on the podcast is we are going to be discussing some what we've been watching and then moving on into a review of Suspiria that I, David Chen, will not be here for, but the remaining three people will have uh, a spirited discussion for, and so you can look forward to that. You can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmCast at gmail.com. I mean, before we get into the show, though, I mean, th- there is something we really... There, there is an elephant in the room that we need to discuss. Uh, <laughs> and it's about uh, something that Britt Hayes tweeted the other night. Uh, and she quoted Lindsay Romain. She said, quote, I like Creed better than I like Radiohead. You can tweet that. End quote. Lindsay Romain. Yeah. And the internet exploded. The internet exploded. Yeah, it did. It what didn't, the hell? It didn't go well. Yeah, um, I, I regret the part where I said you can tweet that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Creed, of course, is the uh, at one point Christian band uh, fronted by Scott Stapp, and Radiohead is one of the greatest bands of all time, right? Correct. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So according uh, to Lindsay, <laughs> so I would like to. I would really like to explain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my my one question for this is, uh, what the fuck, Lindsay? What's going on with that? <laughs> okay, well, so how it really started is that we were sitting on the couch, <laughs> and I was kind of complaining. I'm not a Radiohead fan, I will say that. Um, <laughs> and I said, I don't like Radiohead, but I do like Creep. 
meaning the song Creep. But Brit misheard me <laughs> and thought I said Creed. And then I jokingly was like, you know what? Yeah, sure. I like Creed more than I like Radiohead. Sending the tweet, thinking, you know, harmless, funny. And it made people very angry. <laughs> you know, ultimately, though, Lindsay, this is a good thing because it kind of deflects from your uh, your initial statement of not liking Radiohead. And right. we can just, like, ignore that and just, like, freak out over this thing. Yeah, yeah they were really yeah. concerned about Creed more than the, the actual, like, <laughs> complaints. So. And I think Dave, and he wasn't the only one, responded with, I, I hope she's talking about the movie Creed and not, like, the bands. Because <laughs> that's how you compare bands to movies. That's how it works. I, I, yeah. I think my favorite part of this whole incident was uh, people just, you know, at replying to Lindsay with uh, music videos of the band Creed, which uh, I will just say this, they have not aged well. You know, they have not no. aged well. We did watch them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I watched them all. Did you and have also, a... I just say this because I feel like it's only fair to remove some of the embarrassment from Lindsay in this situation, that there was one Creed song that was like a radio hit or whatever. And we were watching the video and like I knew the words and Lindsay did not. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so... That's... There you go. What was the song? What was the song, by the way? Oh God, I can't remember. I it wasn't. It wasn't higher. It wasn't my own prison. It was like, it was the other one. You know. Yeah. Like the the third arms one. Wide open. Was no, it okay? I'm gonna give you some choice. Was it like with arms wide open? No. Or was it? No, can you that. take me higher? None of those. No, it wasn't that one. We know that one. Mm, okay. I've got to say, this whole thing was worth it just to hear you sing that day. Yeah. <laughs> I created my own prison. No, not that one. Yeah, no, I think it might have been my own prison. I don't Hmm. think she knows that one. Yeah, I don't know that one. Good. There you go. Well, um, well, fun, fun joke you pulled on the internet, but uh, do not wait for Dave's karaoke podcast, by the way, because that would be something coming up. Coming up, uh, my go-to karaoke is my own prison. By the way, I just want you all to really. No, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I, I would not be surprised. Yeah, honestly. I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past me. I'll say that. So Yes. All right, well, uh, let's get to the rest of the show. But one thing I got to do this week is uh, give a shout out to all the people who donated to this podcast. And the thing about donations is people are now using their donations to uh, make declarations of love, do marriage proposals, all kinds of stuff today. So we had two of those this week that I wanted to give a shout-out to. Uh, Elizabeth uh, Bentley donated to the podcast this week. Doron Fischler donated with the message, Anyone But Dave, t- uh, 2019, um, <laughs> trying to get the the campaign to unseat me from the uh, throne of the summer movie wager started early. Um, but we got also this message from Fabian. Fabian writes in with uh, his donation, Hi, David and Slash Filmcast. I've loved and listened to the Slash Filmcast for many years now, but only became a paying subscriber about two years ago. I'm now in a position to back pay what my subscription contribution would have been for the entire time your bo- uh, your podcast has brought joy to my life and enhanced my love of movies. So I hope this helps even a little to reward you for the awesome work you do. If possible, I have a humble request for an on-air message to my wife on the next episode of the podcast. Our anniversary is on November 8th, 
but I won't get to spend it with her as I'll be traveling for work, but I know she'll listen to the next podcast episode. Uh, we usually listen to it together when I'm not away. I will be forever in your debt. If you could share something akin to the message below, please feel free to adapt into your own words that you're more, more comfortable with. Uh, that was his mistake, by yeah. the way. No, he should have yeah. just not included that whole preamble because I'm reading exactly what he's saying. Um, Fabian wants to let his wife Lucy know that he's very sorry they couldn't spend their anniversary together this year. Uh, marrying her was the best decision he's ever made. He continues to love her more every year as they build their life together, and he's so excited for everything still to come. He's so glad Lucy has embraced his love of movies and would like to thank the entire Slash Filmcast crew. Listening to the podcast together on the way home from seeing this, the movie being reviewed has become one of their favorite rituals as a couple. End quote. Um, that's from Fabian. What a kind, uh, kind message. Glad to hear that we are part of a couple's uh, ritual. Uh, listening to the movie review after they watch the movie in theaters. So, so that's very nice. And uh, thanks to Fabian for back paying, you know, 10 years of Slash Filmcast episodes. That is certainly what we expect anyone to do when they listen to us yes. for very long. Hashtag <laughs> back pay what you owe. That's yes. right. That's right. Um, <laughs> next up, Anna Wittenberg from Louisville, Kentucky says, it would mean a lot to me if you could wish Parker, my husband, a happy birthday coming up, uh, up on November 16th. He has been listening to this podcast for almost 10 years. And he introduced it to me when we started dating. I had never listened to podcasts before, and you guys are the first podcast I subscribe to. Since then, we have not missed an episode. We even have our own Slash Filmcast Inside Jokes. We still joke about hashtag Spaghetti Club. We've been together for eight years now, married for three, and we are expecting our first child in January. We'll definitely be rewatching Interstellar then. Thank you for many years of entertainment and laughs, and we look forward to many more. Keep doing what you're doing. End quote. So that comes in from Anna Wittenberg from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, who wishes Parker a happy birthday coming up on November 16th. Um, of course, I could have waited for November 16th to, to deliver that message, but uh, I was afraid I'd forget. I was afraid I would forget, <laughs> and then that would be way worse than delivering it early. Uh, but Anna, yes. thank you so much. That's a very kind message. And for those who don't know, Hashtag Spaghetti Club is about a, a viral tweet that was sent to the Slash Filmcast in which uh, I think a listener's girlfriend brought a bag of spaghetti into the theater um, with, with her. So yeah. um, definitely some hardcore movie theater preservation. Those were simpler times. Simpler you know, times. When, when we would talk about things like that. I mean, I think that was like six months ago, Devendra. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, so hashtag Spaghetti Globe. Anyway, thank you to everyone for donating. If you want to support what we do here on the podcast, you can always go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. All the money you donate does go to help us defray the cost of doing the podcast. Uh, but do not donate if it in any way is a hardship for you. Um, and if you, But if you do donate, then definitely back pay us for 10 years. Uh, that is the right <laughs> way to do it. Okay. What we've been watching this week, Britt Hayes and Lindsay Romaine. This week you've been watching The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix. What do you guys think of that show? Hail Satan. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's kind of the takeaway. Um, I loved it. Uh, I can't speak for everyone. I know there's been kind of some mixed responses to it. For me, it really reminded me kind of of like Buffy and its heyday. It's a little messy and shaggy in places, but it's a lot of fun. Um, there's really great characters, good like creature design. Um, it's witchy, which, you know, appeals to me. So I loved it. I also loved it primarily because it is witchy, um, and I love witch stuff. Um, I also just love that, it, like, as a coming-of-age thing, it kind of went in an unexpected way for me. I think, like, with stories of women coming into their power as witches, like, we've seen that story kind of, like, over and over again, and the duality of what that power is. 
But with this, it's just like the biggest thing is her learning lessons, like becoming more responsible with, you know, like I have this power and I need to be a more responsible human being. Um, Plus, there's like hot headmaster Satan dudes and (laughs) oh, oh, and Bronson Pinchot. Yes. From Perfect Strangers is in it. He plays the principal at the school and Lindsay did not know who he was. I mean, like she like knows, but like I think she doesn't like know because she never watched yeah. Perfect Strangers. Wow. So wow. she has to tell her all about wow. Bulky. This is like a generational gap thing. I don't know, like a millennial generational gap thing. Like it, yeah. just a very minor one. Like she only missed yeah. it for like a couple of years. So far, Lindsay, yeah. you're zero for two between the Creed yes, and the not looking good for you, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah. I know. I feel bad. I feel like we're all just piling on Lindsay. <laughs> oh man, go watch the opening to Perfect Strangers. That is like back when TV shows had perfect catchy little openings, and like you would you would just like love to sit and watch and hang out with these people every day. Uh, I showed that to my wife for the first time because she had never seen it either. It's just this, it's really sweet. I don't know. It I miss that. Yeah, the, when 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 uh, TV shows had theme songs that had words in it and stuff, you know, yeah, yeah. that described everything that was going to happen on the show. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes <laughs> the world seems perfect. Nothing to rearrange. Is that the right song? Is that the one? Something like that. Yeah, Something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. 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 There's like a harmonica in there. I'm yeah. just showing off all my my karaoke greatest hits for you guys tonight. Um, <laughs> So, uh, okay, Sabrina, this show that's on Netflix, I guess uh, one question is, is it very different than the the other Sabrina? Are you familiar with the other Sabrina show? Yes. Yes, it's like barely even comparable. I think really the only things that are similar is that she's named Sabrina and is a witch. And she has her aunts. And her cat, I think, and and Harvey, her boy. The cat doesn't talk. The cat doesn't talk and people are pissed off about that. So, oh, well. The cat doesn't talk yet. They're talking about how he might talk in like a future season. But I have to say, my only complaint about the show, and it's not even a complaint about the show, really. It's just like Harvey is so boring (laughs) and uninteresting. He's like less interesting than Archie, and Archie is pretty uninteresting. Like Archie is the lamest part of his own show, and Harvey is like. Harvey's so her who, boyfriend, who, is, right? who is Harvey for the like? Yeah. Uh, can can you okay. kind of talk about the premise of the show for those who don't know anything about it? Oh, yeah. Here, Lindsay will explain. Yeah. So, um, it kind of follows it follows Sabrina Spellman. She's a 16 year old or about to turn 16 in the first episode. Um, half witch, half mortal. Um, so she's kind of torn between these two worlds. And um, on her 16th birthday, she has to decide if she wants to fully commit herself to being a witch. Or if she wants to stay in the mortal realm, I guess. And so, like, the way it works is that if you become a full witch, if you sign the Book of Satan, mm-hmm. you're, you're supposed to completely disassociate with the mortal world. So she would have to, like, say goodbye to all of her friends. And, um, this sort of is like the Jedi problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so Harvey is her boyfriend um, and kind of the key reason why she's conflicted about uh, whether or not she wants to go full Satan worshiper or not. So that's kind of the, how the season starts. Um, I won't spoil what choice she makes, but uh, it's interesting. It's kind of about skirting the lines between these two worlds, really. Yeah. Also, it's worth noting, like this is in the Riverdale universe too, because it's also yes. uh, created by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa, who did Riverdale and also has done a whole bunch of Archie stuff. I think Christy did a good breakdown of that recently. I've been catching up on Riverdale, and I love that show, even though it got a little messy in season two. And this is fun. <laughs> this is like a nice companion piece. But yeah, her boyfriend feels like a Riverdale reject. 
basically. Yes. Like he couldn't he couldn't get into that town, so he's here and somehow he's interesting, I guess. I don't know. There's this um, like whole subplot about like his family is in the yeah. mining business and it's like this thing with like the mines and I'm like very Zoolander. I yeah. Not, yeah. I'm like, I do not care about your stupid mines, Harvey. And also I think I sort of resent him because Honestly, like I'm watching this and I'm like, I don't know, hailing Satan and being a witch and like having to to dissociate from like all mortals sounds pretty great to me. You're like, this is pretty cool. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't like that Harvey's holding her back. (laughs) But he's not, he's not, he's at least not actively doing it. It's just like his dumb face and she can't like, she just can't like escape it, I guess. Um, I I will say I'm enjoying the show. I wish there were more stakes because it does feel like, it, it it feels weird because tonally the show will sometimes be very full fledged horror and there'll be crazy monsters and stuff and blood and guts. And then sometimes it's just like the, you know, the very, very relaxing adventures of Sabrina where everything always works out for her. It doesn't feel like Buffy and that there's like a, you know, mortal stakes at times, which is weird. It's a weird thing. And also for some reason, um, they're really trying to get Kieran and Shipka naked a lot in the show, and that I find yeah. kind of disturbing because she's Sally Draper to me. And then, the, you know, I don't, I don't right. know. It's I was little, yelling at the TV at one point, like Sally Draper, put your you don't need on. to be naked. You're just walking through the forest. It's yeah. <laughs> What what do you all think of uh, Kiernan Shipka's performance? Uh, so Kiernan Shipka, the actress who plays Sabrina, and she was also Sally Draper, as you indicated, Devendra. I've I've seen some mixed comments about her performance online. Are you are you a fan of her performance in Sabrina? I dig it. I um, think the weakness is in the writing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would like to take this moment to uh, win something for once on this podcast <laughs> and uh, say that I actually um year I think a year and a half ago. I uh, had read the comics and Kiernan was like in my brain sort of as I was reading it. And I even tweeted out like, um, like picture this, like Kiernan Shipka as Sabrina. And then she got cast like a few months later and it was really spooky <laughs> for me. Are you a and, witch? Well, Netflix, <laughs> literally the Netflix account <laughs> found my tweet and like tweeted it out. And, wow. Like, I'm a Netflix certified witch, but um, right. so I think that's your way of saying you are a fan of, of her performance. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I just have to be. No, but um, <laughs> I think she's I think she's good. I've seen some complaints also. I, I do think the writing sometimes puts her in a position where she has to be kind of like the naggy, like mm-hmm. you know, why is this happening to me? Kind of character sometimes, and then not that she does the victim thing so much, but it just. I think a product of the writing sometimes maybe makes her sound more obnoxious. I don't think it's really an acting problem. Yeah. It's sort of like the character yeah. is always right. Like no matter yeah. what is happening, like she's always right and nobody can really tell her anything wrong. Like right. it doesn't feel like there's, humor. yeah, there's yeah. no dialogue happening really. Whereas with Buffy, at least there's that like internal, there's always internal conflict among the friends. Right. 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 Yeah. There isn't, I, I do think the weakest part of the show is, is all the mortals like Harvey and also her friends, um, not that they're bad, but they, I don't feel like they're super well-developed yet. That's something I'm hoping. Yeah, especially the friend that's, like, gender non-conforming, which I think is really cool to see that represented mm-hmm. on such a mainstream show. And I don't think that they've really directly addressed that, but it's mm-hmm. basically just the way that she's mocked at school and stuff, and you can tell that she's very much, like, queer. But... Mm-hmm. I do love that she is like in her own way. Like she looks sort of boyish, but she is a girl. And I just love that representation that it has. It also doesn't feel like it's beating you over the head with the wokeness as much as Riverdale does. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Riverdale like will have a thing like, yeah, it definitely like celebrates its wokeness as much as it can. 
Uh, I would also say shout out to uh, Miranda Otto, who's in the yes. show. Yes. Help, I, as one of Sabrina's aunts, I didn't expect that. And I've loved her like cable work recently. She's been on uh, Homeland and a whole bunch of other yeah, stuff. Yeah, she's recently. great in Homeland. I love yeah, her. Yeah, so right. good. So, Homeland uh, is still on. It's still uh, it, on. It is, it is not good on. anymore. Yeah, it's, it is not good. Does she but, still listen to jazz? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but now she lives in D.C. So, yeah, um, it's still thing. That's pretty harsh. Thing. Pretty harsh. Um, but uh, <laughs> The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So, uh, Lindsay and Britt, have you two finished the show at this point? Yes. 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 So, you're fans. Devendra, how far into it are you? I'm about halfway through. Okay, I'm, cool. I'll keep watching it. I like I like this whole Riverdale universe thing. So, as you know, part of that, I'll keep going. All right, also, well, just to call it out, there's actually a very direct Riverdale reference at one point. Mm-hmm. I think it's in episode seven. Um, so if you're a fan of Riverdale, keep your eyes peeled. It's very right. subtle. Yeah, but it's like a straight up like crossover sort of. So. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah. And isn't the town Greendale, which they do also reference in Riverdale already, I believe? Yeah. Yep. That's yeah. where Miss Grundy moved to. Yes. Also, we can't talk about this show because we've already mentioned Miranda Otto, but we can't talk about it and not mention Lucy Davis, who is also amazing. And, like, I keep saying, like, I want to be a Zelda, but I know that I'm a Hilda. Uh (laughs) Also great to see her back on TV, like, back in something. Yes, she's so charming and so relatable and so sweet, and I want her to adopt me. All right, well, that's The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Uh, A lot of fans here on the podcast for that show. Um, Speaking of Netflix, another show that's been on Netflix uh, that has been gaining a lot of buzz recently, The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, Now, Britt and Lindsay, have you seen this show by any chance? Yes. You're you're finished with this show as well. Devendra, you, you wrapped up. Watching the show I just well. finished it. I talked about it last week, but I just finished it uh, since the last episode. And I just want to say, go, go watch the show. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> it's very good. Um, I, I think it maybe it maybe starts a little rough, but honestly, I was hooked from the first episode. Uh, but yeah, uh, just reiterating everything I said last uh, last episode. I love Mike Flanagan's work, and this feels like it, it, this exemplifies everything he does really well. Uh, but by the end, I was also thinking like, man, somebody give this guy like Silent Hill or something, if that were still a relevant franchise, because he's doing amazing stuff. Um, he recently, uh, I would say keep watching to uh, episode six has some great single take camera work. And he just broke down a whole bunch of that on Twitter as well. Just like an amazing production uh, towards the end. I think the show goes to some very different and interesting places. I, I think for a lot of people, it takes a narrative turn that they didn't like, but I actually kind of, I kind of dug where it went. It, it really worked to like redefine uh, the idea of what like haunts us. And maybe it's a little too pat. Maybe it's a little too, um, I don't know, like a little too emotional or Spielbergian or something, but it kind of worked for me because by the end of this show, um, you really feel like this is a family. You understand their connections to each other. And there's a lot of like hashtag family stuff going on here. It reminds me of like the Fast and Furious franchise and everything I love about that. And, you know, that, the whole idea of like, yeah, at the, in, at the end, there may be ghosts. We may be haunted by the specter of our dead parents or something. But, yeah, uh, at the end, what we have is everyone. But the real you know, ghost. Each other. The real ghost was love. Right? The real ghost was love, <laughs> and it's everything. The real ghost is everything. Well, the, the real the ghost, ghost that's all around be, us is love. It can I be think. guilt. It can be <laughs> so many things. Um, it kind of heavy-handed, but it really worked for me. And honestly, like I was, I was tearing up by the end of the season. Like there, there's some great character work going on in the show. 
Lindsay, I know you are a big fan of Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I loved it. So I'm a huge Shirley Jackson fan, and she's my mm. favorite writer of all time. I'm obsessed with the book, and I was primed to hate this show. I was kind of salty about it before it came out because it changes the book story almost completely. There's not yeah, really yeah. anything linking it. Um, so yeah, I was kind of I went in with a kind of grumpy attitude, <laughs> and I got screeners from Netflix, and I binged them all. I think in like a day or two. Like I got really quickly obsessed with it. And was hyping it up big time before it came out, probably to the annoyance of some people in my life. But (laughs) I just think it's beautiful. I mean, it really touched me. I agree with Devinder that at the end it gets a little, maybe a little saccharine. But Yeah, yeah, that's the um, word I was looking for. Yeah, but it it got to me. I think if you are someone who has, you know, experienced any of the things that the siblings deal with, um, it'll touch you in probably pretty specific ways. So... I really related a lot to it. I think the storytelling is really genius. It's such a like rewarding show to rewatch. I've rewatched it now. I rewatched with Brit and uh, just like the layers of things that you notice Mm -hmm, too, mm -hmm. because there's, uh, I know even like Flanagan said that he created it to be rewatched and it's so true. You just catch all of these little details and it's like really blows me away how unique it is. Um, I also like the, the cool things he does about like uh, just hiding the ghosts in certain scenes yeah. too yes. like that's something they and they kind of people started noticing it as soon as the series launched but now it's like kind of a game it's just like is there a ghost hiding in that shadow or something and they never mention it or anything it's just this weird creepy thing and i think it gives this the entire series this kind of extra layer of dread of creepiness or something it's sort of like in hereditary where you you could maybe make out something in the corner of the room whereas you know this is several what a dozen hours you know of something and you're always on the lookout for something watching yeah, let, you. Let's just be clear uh, about what's happening in the show The Haunting of Hill House, which is mm-hmm. that uh, in the background of many shots, yeah. there is a ghost that often you don't see the first time you're watching the episode. Mm-hmm. And I, I So I just looked at an article. I think Vulture had a good breakdown, uh, but they basically break down when a ghost appears and it, it blew my mind in terms of... <laughs> like I it just was like, I can't believe there was a ghost in plain sight yeah. in in the show that, like, overall, I mean, it uses darkness creatively, but overall, it's fairly well illuminated. What I mean by that is you can generally see everything that's in the frame. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not like it's not like they, they're, they're um, you know, they're not, like, in center frame completely in focus, but they're very clearly visible ghosts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's just it's, – and I, I had heard before. I'd heard before, hey – you know, be on the lookout for the ghost in the show. And so I'd kind of been like, okay, let's see how good you are show. Let's check it out. And, uh, I've been looking out for the ghost and I saw almost none of them. And then I went back uh-huh. and, and looked at this article and it just was shocking how many of them there are, uh, scattered throughout the entire show in the background. Uh, it is, it is pretty impressive. It's um, kind of great. And it's also like a little, it's, it's a little extra chill. Once you see it, it's like, um, this is happening. Do they know it's here? Is that just in my TV? Like, what is happening right, right. now? It kind of it kind of gets a little weird. I actually interviewed the costume designer for the show uh, a couple days ago, and she mentioned that uh, in addition to, you know, doing all of the, the main characters, that she also had to design full looks for all of those background ghosts. Oh, man. And I just, like, when you even think about, like, the level of detail in it to that level, it's just insane. Yeah, we, we should make clear. You see these ghosts, you might see, you know... Um, they're they're usually out of focus, or you see them like in a tiny part of the frame. Um, so for them to commit to that level of detail, even for ghosts that are barely visible, uh, is pretty impressive. 
So there's also there's one scene and I can't remember exactly which episode, but I'm sure like Vulture included it in their thing. Um, there's one episode where Bruce Greenwood is one of the ghosts and he's in the shot with Carlo Gugino. So it's like a Gerald's game reunion. Mm. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I will just say this. Um, not a huge fan of the show. I'm sorry. Uh, it's OK. I, I, it's I fine. watched. Uh, I watched a few episodes, and then people said, make sure you stick with it through episode five and six. And so I dragged myself through episode five and six. And yeah. I will say episode six, people have been talking about it a lot. Devendra, you mentioned it. It is a uh, really impressive piece of work, technically. Like, they built the sets for the show around what they did with that episode. Yeah, right. for one episode. Yeah, uh, in order in order to achieve what they did with that episode, so it's really impressive technically. I think my big issue with uh, okay, so let me let me talk about all the things that are great about Haunting of Hill House. And by the end of this, you'll <laughs> you'll all say like, "Well, why don't you like the show? That sounds amazing." I mean, I think the casting is really great. You got some child actors who are mm-hmm. in general pretty solid, and then you have young versions of characters that I, I found to be pretty convincing overall in terms of like them being the younger version of this other actor. Um, the sound design is very good. There is some really great uh, horror imagery, horror imagery that like made me you know, jump or get, got me scared, and, um, and I was really impressed with that. And, of course, episode six really is, I, I mean, it, it, the, the creators of the show, specifically Mike Flanagan, who directed many of the episodes, if not all the episodes. Uh, I think he directed all. He didn't write every one. Right. I think I but said that last week. Yeah. He really put himself out there like the that shot that or that's episode that everyone's talking about is is an episode that uh it's very possible they could have failed to achieve that uh-huh. that episode like they there were many points at which they would have not succeeded at, at at doing that episode and i have to admire anyone who attempts something that you could fail terribly at and and still succeed i mean that is mm-hmm. that is truly amazing i think my big issue with the show is just that the the first you know four to five episodes tell the same kind of sequence of events from different perspectives, and most of the time when you do this, uh, it, it, every retelling is supposed to be like, oh, oh, oh my gosh, another layer of this is revealed. This is amazing. Another layer of this story is revealed. It's so illuminating, um, and that's just not the feeling I got. I, I, I felt mm. like it was extremely repetitive and just I felt like I'm seeing these characters repeat these same beats over and over again. Yeah. Um, and I have seen people complain that like the show does drag a little bit, that they like like many Netflix shows. It's like this is a show that probably probably only needed like seven or eight episodes to tell its story. Um, so that's kind of what I'm feeling. And uh, and so as a result, I just find it to be. Uh, kind of a drag in terms of in terms of getting through it. Um, okay, but, but like, where do you stand on like <laughs> the haunting of Hill House versus Creed? <laughs> uh, Creed, the uh, Ryan Coogler movie. I, w- I would much rather watch the latter. On, uh, no, 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 no. You know, I mean Creed the band. <laughs> the Creed the band. The more mm. apt comparison would be Haunting of Hill House versus uh, Thirteen Ghosts, right? Mm. Yeah. The other adaptation. Yeah. Uh, haven't seen Thirteen Ghosts, but Haunting of Hill House versus Creed. I would yeah. say one of them made me feel like I was trapped in a in a never-ending series of media that I would never escape from, and the other one was Creed. Uh, no. No, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's I mean, that's yeah. harsh. Um, but I, I'm glad you all really enjoyed the show. Everyone at my uh, office at work is is like crazy about the show. They love it. 
Um, so I think I'm in the minority opinion here, but I just wanted to to voice it because I know there's a few people out there who feel the same way. Uh, but the I, I think I think Dave, you notice something that is very purposeful in the show too. Like there is definitely a reason why it repeats certain things. Um, if you finish the show, I think you will <laughs> understand mm. a, a little bit of why it's doing that <laughs> sure. because it's doing. I, I will not say much about that, but sure. it's doing some interesting things about. That you know, why why would we be seeing these same events over and over again? Um, I I honestly did feel like I was getting more insight uh, as I was watching every episode, but I, yeah, I yeah, hear it. It's it's also just like these are all the episodes are really long. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. it's a very um, uh, what what a, uh, is obtuse the word I'm looking for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not it's a, in a, it's an obtuse complaint to say that something's too long because. Uh, you know, I, I watched The Handmaiden, you know, like the uh, the two and a half hour long Park Chan Wook movie, and I'm like, I-, I could watch another two and a half hours long of, of sure, this, sure. you know? Um, if I'm really sucked into the story, it doesn't matter how long it is. Um, but fundamentally, I think it just feels like I, I don't need this much runtime to convey the, mm-hmm. I- the idea. Maybe some episodes should have been like half an hour. Yeah, honestly, yeah. It just like cut a little like bit, just cut a, take, take a little bit of fat off the top of each one, and I think you're... You're good to go. Um, I think I would have been much more into the show. But fair enough. Um, a lot of people love the show. And so uh, – and I, I have to say uh, it's, de- it's definitely going for a specific uh, mm-hmm. look, a specific milieu. You know, um, I, I think the sort of color grading of the show, very Instagram filtery in some in some respects. But, like, <laughs> people seem to dig it. Uh, and, of course, the episode – like, regardless of that, I think episode six is, like, really – a, a great cinematic achievement so like can't mm-hmm. cannot argue with that um and when you read about how it's done like i actually honestly enjoyed <laughs> more the process of reading how it was accomplished than you the actual would episode itself. you would Dave. yeah i know i know i'm saying all kinds of terrible things so it's it's uh, all good um i i will say too like uh just the the way the show conveys the nature of hauntings i guess mm. like what it means to you as a person how something can attach to i don't know your soul in a way it's downright creepy. Like it's, it, I think it's doing some new and different things. Uh, even though it has like the jump scares you'd expect, I feel like every beat is done a little differently. So that's that's kind of why. Like this just hits all the right notes for me and what I like about certain types of horror movies. I, I will say one thing that I enjoyed about the show is uh, very much like the new Halloween, the 2018 Halloween. Mm-hmm. It respects the fact that uh, things that you watch in a horror film, uh, events that happen to people in horror films. Uh, can traumatize people and can yep. kind of leave uh, lasting damage that can take lifetimes to undo. Uh, and so that that part I, I really uh, appreciate and respect about the film. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because I was just about to say, like, Lindsay and I have both done a fair bit of writing. Oh, Lindsay has done a lot more writing about it than I have. But I did write a piece um, for Screen Crush a few weeks ago. Um, about what this shares in common with Halloween and also hereditary mm-hmm. and sharp objects. And that's sort of like intergenerational trauma um, and sort of coping with the familial trauma. And, uh, um, and creepy dollhouses, yes. And yes, creepy dollhouses. Yeah, they <laughs> yeah. are dollhouses. <laughs> uh, well, check out that uh, piece by Britt Hayes over at Screen Crush and uh, check out The Haunting of Hill House if you want to uh, get into the horror franchise that everyone is into these days. Um, that's on Netflix, along with Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Uh, all right, to wrap up what we've been watching, let me just mention I spent $10 on Unfriended Dark Web uh, <laughs> to, to watch it. 
And that was a bad that was a bad idea. This movie's not very good. Um I, yeah. I Haunting of Hill's House is like, I'm right here. I got more episodes. You're watching that? Uh, uh, several of my uh, like uh Miguel uh or, or I'm sorry, Mike Aparicio, uh, we call him Miguel in, in the Slack um uh-huh. that we're part of. Uh he uh recommends watching Dark instead of Haunting of Hill House because that's like one of the best mm-hmm. shows on Netflix. Have you guys seen Dark yet? Have you finished Dark? I did see Dark and yeah. I, I lasted I one saw episode. It. I didn't finish it. Mm, exactly. So everyone's yeah. fan of Haunting of Hill House but not Dark is, is what the yeah. deal is. Okay. Yeah, now I, I need to watch Dark all the way through just <laughs> to prove Oh, German. Yeah. It is, it's, too, yeah. it's too German. I, I still plan to watch Dark. It was just very if you think Haunting of Hill House is slow Dark is like yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, actually, speaking of Slack, before I get to our review of Unfriended Dark Web, I did want to mm-hmm. give a shout out to uh, the Slack Filmcast. Something happened in the Slack Filmcast that was extraordinary. So for those who don't know, uh, the Slack Filmcast is a Slack community made up of Slash Filmcast listeners. Uh, and you can join yourself at slackfilmcast.com. And I, I launched that community about a year ago. And uh, a lot of people have joined, and it's been amazing. And... Uh, this week, for the first time, a Slack Filmcast meetup occurred with four people from four different countries. Uh, <laughs> so there was uh, – I'm just going to use their usernames. Michelle Cristina from Brazil, Spurs from Germany, Jennifer Mack from Austria, and B. Mitchell from Scotland all met up in Edinburgh, Scotland for the first ever Slack Filmcast meetup. Uh, and they shared a photo in there, and it is absolutely adorable. They have shirts that have our names on them. Um, so it's super cool and uh, just wanted to give a shout out to them for, for, you know, bringing the community into real life. Super cool. Anyway, uh, let's move on to Unfriended Dark Web. Britt Hayes, I think you've watched this movie as well. I did. I watched it like a week ago. I was just kind of bored and thought, yeah, this sounds all right. And I kept, people kept telling me I would like it because I really hated the first one. Mm. Like I found it really grating. I've just. So much shrieking. It just felt very shrill to me. Uh, this, I, I was told I would like it more because it's it's more mean. You know, it's like, oh, you actually kind of like these characters. And then the movie's just really mean and nasty to them. <laughs> and I mean, like, sure, it is. But I wasn't really moved by it in any way. I was just like, whatever. So so for those who don't know, Unfriended and Unfriended Dark Web are movies that, like the recent uh, theatrical release Searching, take place entirely on a computer screen. Um, and specifically around Skype calling, like Skype is uh, a major a major character in these films, uh, <laughs> and the the first one was very much like a, uh, I would say much more supernaturally, right? It was like very much mm-hmm. a uh, like an apparition or something's like haunting these characters. Whereas this one, Unfriended Dark Web, is much more straightforward in terms, of, like it's much more based in reality. But I would say it does two things, not. Right, or it does two things. It goes wrong in two places. Number one, uh, the plot of the film feels like it came out of uh, like five or six years ago rather than, you know, <laughs> last year. It, a, a, lo- a large part of it has to do with cryptocurrency. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, which is just kind of like feels kind of silly. In, it's still a thing. It's it's still a thing, but it just it – just, um, yeah. 
it's like cryptocurrency and the dark web and like right, you right. know Tor and and the way they represent the dark web is extremely silly in the film. I think um, <laughs> so. Like visually, the way they represent it on screen is very silly. So I think that's uh, not great about the film. And then um, an- another thing that I really didn't like about the movie is it basically has characters doing impossible things to um like online like doing impossible things to your computer that that like <laughs> interfering with your facebook like making it seem like so like this person is communicating with you like let's say i'm facebook messaging with davindra but then yeah. another person's like intercepting those facebook messages and then like oh, messaging man. you as well on top of the other person's but you know it just feels like i don't think this is actually possible it's like um here's a random deep cut reference you know that movie i am number four um, yes. There's yeah. there's this moment where they're like, hey, hey, please delete all photos of us from the internet, you know, like, and then they, they go, he's like, okay, all photos of us are deleted now, we're all, we're off the grid now, and it's like, you, you can't do that, that's not possible. That's how it works. Uh, I can't wait for the next unfriended movie, by the way, which is all about being haunted by the unwanted Skype upgrades. That would be yeah, I mean, every, in the middle the of every Skype. important call, got upgrade. Yeah. Well, that was one thing that I actually really appreciated about the first unfriended is that it uses Skype lag as, like, a very terrifying yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> this movie tries to do the same, but does it to a much more silly and less impactful effect, you know? You, we've all been on a Skype video call where the person just freezes. And then what I liked about that, like, there's a moment in the first Unfriended where someone freeze, froze, but then, like, the background still moved, so it was, like, something about them was frozen, you know what I mean? Um and this movie just had less of that, and it was much more grounded in reality, which I thought was um, not not a not, didn't didn't do it any favors. So, mm-hmm. um, how many endings does it have? Are yeah. there like six different endings? It, it has many different endings, none of which are. Particularly I don't know that any of them would have made me feel any better about it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty rough ending. Um, but I I just do still salute any film that like the reason i gave this movie the time of day is because um i like anyone that's trying something new trying something new with the medium and so even though i don't think this succeeded i I admire the creators for at least giving it a shot because i think yeah telling movies on a on a computer screen is an interesting way to do so so i don't know like okay i have an issue with this whole like and i and i still haven't seen um What's the other one? Searching. I guess searching. searching. Yeah, I still haven't seen searching yet, which I do hear is good, but pretty good. Yeah, I haven't. I just have this issue with these movies that are told entirely on screen or in screen, and it's that yeah, screen I, life movies as they're called. Yeah, screen, screen life. Yeah. Li- yeah, which is like I don't know about. Mo- I'm sure most people listening would agree with me. Like my whole life is a screen as it is. Like <laughs> when I go to the movie theater, like I'm I know I'm watching something on a larger screen. <laughs> But, you know, I don't need to look at the computer screen or the mm-hmm. phone screen. And it's just like, I feel like we're constantly inundated with screens. And I'm going to get, I guess it sounds going to appreciate It's like to our des- detriment, you know, like yeah. it, to the point where it's become like a whole thing to like go off the grid or like unplug for like an hour to have dinner with your friend. Like, I just don't, after I've been staring at a freaking computer screen for like eight to 10 hours, I don't want to go to the movies and watch a computer screen for another two hours. Yeah, you, you realize you you're telling people this on your laptop. That's... Yeah, you're telling people this on uh, a medium that is to say yeah. podcast that they literally need a screen to access, right? 
Yeah, but you don't look at the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you have to look at the podcast. Though. Let's enjoy you know? podcasting. You could do anything. I understand what I'm saying. I <laughs> listen honestly. If I didn't work on the internet, like if that wasn't my job to be on the internet, where I have to put these things, like I would not have the internet. Mm. I would live in the middle of the woods in like a witchy cottage. And just make like candles all day. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and no, have a talking. Cat. I think that's a yeah. fair critique. Um, not not of uh, modern lifestyle necessarily, but just like the idea that like, hey, we spend so much time looking at screens. Um, yep. We go to movies to see what I is possible. Like, yeah, what is possible uh, in a medium that's not a screen. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, that's not a computer screen, as it were. Um, a, right. so I, can, I can respect that, Bert. Yeah. Um, I can respect that. But th- is this a recent conclusion you've come to? Because it sounds like you still watched the movie Unfriended a week ago. Yeah. So. <laughs> have you I seen mean, Searching, too? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still haven't seen Searching. But I, I, this is something I think about often, to be honest. But especially over, I don't know, the last couple of years. You know, I don't know if you know what's been going on in the news. I don't know if you read mm-hmm. that. But Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Defi- yeah. Definitely has made me think more and more about not having the internet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think that's completely, uh, totally fair. So yep. anyway, um, I get it. Unfriended Dark Web. Uh, not a great film, unfortunately. So, uh, but uh, keep keep trying those screen life films, people. Keep trying. Uh, I will still keep watching, even if Brit Hayes yeah. is fundamentally opposed to them on a very core level. I, I think Searching is very good. Searching does a lot of stuff that yeah. could be in front I think Searching is solid. It's not yeah. not a perfect film, but there, there definitely are some really cool ideas in that movie. So would definitely recommend checking out Searching. If you have a chance, Brit, maybe it'll change your mind about these kinds of screen life movies. I'm I'm open to being changed. Awesome. Okay, well, I think that's going to bring us to our review of Suspiria. But before we uh, get to it, I got to peace out. I'm I'm not going to be participating in this review, uh, so I hope you all have a great time discussing it. I look forward <laughs> to listening to it, but uh, I got to get out of here. Uh, in in terms of where you can find me on the internet, I do want to mention uh, I have just launched a new podcast uh, with C. Robert Cargill. It's a podcast about writing. Every episode is supposed to be like ten twenty minutes. We'll see how close we nice. can keep to that. Um, but yeah, Cargill's been sharing all these writing tips, and I'm just like, look, let's just like preserve this in podcast form. I want I want more people to access this, so you can check it out. It's called Write Along, uh, and uh, <laughs> it, a delightful play on words. Um, mm. And uh, you can find it at writealongpodcast.com. That's W R I T E alongpodcast.com, and follow me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S K Y. Uh, and let's get to our review of Suspiria. Beginning, she gave me things perfect balance, perfect sleep. Oh, she wants to get inside of me. I can feel her. Oh, she can see me. When you dance the dance of another. You make yourself in the image of its creator. I feel like I'm not even here yet. The damn blank's incredible. One, two, three. The way she transmits her work. You have to decide what is it you want to be for this company. There's more in that building than what you can see, Doctor. dangerous people.
And that was from the trailer for Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria remake. Um, Britt, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this movie. I'm sorry Dave had to run away. Uh, <laughs> but I think this will be a fun chat. And I was really interested in getting both of you on for this as well, because I'm sure uh, you both have a lot of thoughts of this movie. Uh, but first, could you tell me, you know, what are your feelings on the original film? And how do you think this one holds up? Uh, go ahead. Um, yeah. I, I love the original Suspiria. And I remember seeing it for the first time when I was like 15 or 16. I'm being just so blown away by what I was seeing visually. And that first like 20 minutes terrified me. So... Um, it had a really big impact on me, especially as somebody who grew up um, being more of a genre fan than a film fan initially. And, you know, I think the best way to describe how Luca's version would compare to Dario Argenzo's version is that they're sort of separate but equal in my eyes. I mean, it's like comparing The Shining, uh, the Stephen King book versus the Stanley Kubrick version in mm -hmm. the film. Like, they're very different. Um, and they have like very like basic narrative components in common, but what these two artists are doing with the same story is completely different. And I think that they're both fantastic in their own right and for different reasons entirely. Cool. And Lindsay, uh, your thoughts on the original and the new one just quickly. Yeah, I would largely agree. Um, I don't have, I, I do love the original. Um, I think it's beautiful. The score is incredible and iconic for a reason. And it just those like colors that really sticks with you. It's not necessarily one of like my favorite horror movies or one that I even have a very clear memory of like seeing for the first time, but it's one that has stood out with me, stood out to me for a long time. Um, as far as how it compares, I agree. It's they're completely different to me, honestly. And like, it's almost the same way you mentioned the shining. It's kind of like the haunting of Hill house too, mm -hmm. where it's like these two completely separate entities that share some DNA, but uh, are totally separate. And I know I've been getting asked, I'm sure lots of people have on Twitter, um, you know, should I see the original before I see this one? And I mean, first of all, yes, you should just watch the original yeah. <laughs> because it's a good movie, but um, you don't have to watch it to like understand this one. They're, they're wholly separate. I do think though that it is, I mean, yeah, it's not imperative to watch the original, but I mm -hmm. do think that I would suggest it because there are some elements in this that are in direct dialogue with the original and yeah, it's sort yeah. of critiquing and embracing at the same time. Yeah, most definitely. I think like if you look at any sort of remake, often it is worth looking back at the original. Uh, you guys are mentioning a lot of great like uh, adaptations. Uh, I'm thinking more of like uh, as I was watching this, I was thinking a lot of Annihilation and how. Oh, yes. Yeah, it, the movie is a complete mutation of what the book is. And even that is thematically appropriate with the story and like the subject matter and everything going on. Um, and this one, too, feels like a complete like, you know, like we're just reimagining this entire story. Uh, it feels yeah, almost magical in a way, like we're just relooking at the same story just told in a different way uh i will say um i don't think i love the original suspiria and maybe that's sacrilegious um i, I saw it in college and that was after growing up with a ton of like you know 80s horror movies and 90s horror movies so i was also coming into movies as mostly a genre fan I think maybe because I grew up on, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and I grew up on like a lot of like movies that uh, were directly inspired by Suspiria and in some ways built and improved on what the original did. 
Um, by the time I saw uh, Dario Argento's version, I just wasn't super impressed. Um, I'll say the score is fantastic. The look of it is amazing. Like it's an aesthetically beautiful film. Uh, but when you get down to it, it just feels really, um, I guess, really simple and basic to me, uh, which is why I think I genuinely love this version. Uh, okay. This is such a richer movie. It is kind of, you know, going over similar beats. Uh, but I think there's just a lot more going on here, right? Because uh, probably because there are many more characters, uh, but there are more story threads. I think there's more meat to the bone of what's actually happening. Um, you know, Susie Bannon is it feels like a more complete character because we get some backstory for her in this movie uh, that we didn't really in the original. Um, I, I think the original felt like it was really a stylized slasher horror movie uh, with some great witchy undertones. Whereas this is trying to be like a really interesting historical tale too, um, set in like a specific time in Germany, you know, when mm-hmm. things uh, were, there was a lot happening in history there. Uh, you have a character who, you know, is directly tied to, um, you know, he's a Jewish person who has experienced uh, dealing with the Nazis. Um, you have Susie Bannon, who's in this movie, is somebody from a very uh, religious background. Um, was she a Mennonite or an Amish? Know. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that adds a lot more to this character and to this movie and to what it's actually trying to do. Uh, did you guys feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And that's another thing where I feel like it's like in direct sort of dialogue with Argento's version is that it's sort of like a call and response thing that's happening is, um, you know, Argento's was more style over substance. And there was a mystery about whether or not there were witches in this, like from the Mm -hmm. outset. It's not a spoiler at all, because it's within like the first 15 minutes. It's like, yes, there are witches at the school. And that's not the story, you know, like the story isn't like, is there, aren't there witches? It's, uh, it's just a very thematically dense film. There's so many layers to it. And I've seen Mm -hmm. it three times. I just saw it for a third time yesterday. And I just, I'm still like struck continually by all of these things that are working in concert with one another in such a beautiful way. And I, you know, a complaint I've seen a lot on like social media is that, you know, it doesn't have the same color palette as Argento's version. Sure. And when we get into the spoiler thing, we can talk about that more. But there's it's very intentional. Yeah, yeah. It uses color in a very intentional way, I think. Mm-hmm. The same I way think... it sort of uses mu- music, too, mm-hmm. which Lindsay was not a big fan of the music. <laughs> oh, I think we we're going to agree with that. Um, that's Tom York's <laughs> score for this, right? Which at times feels... I, I like the instrumentals. And then he starts singing. I'm like, I... Why? Oh my god! I don't. Yeah. I don't need you here right now. <laughs> that's yeah. That's one of my biggest complaints. Um, just to go off of Brit, I agree. This movie is big and bold and beautiful and strange, and it leaves you with so much more to think about than the original. Um, so much more. It's like you could write ten different thesis papers about this movie, and they would all be a different topic. Like it's just there's a lot going on. I think maybe arguably too much sometimes there are certain things that maybe don't work as well for me which we can get into later and yeah i agree the score for me is just not great um it's fine in parts i think parts of it are really beautiful but i agree i don't really understand the choice to have like a man singing over (laughs) Susie's like really um sort of powerful moments so yeah i i loved the movie i think i have maybe a little bit more 
to complain about than <laughs> either you or Brit, mm-hmm. um, which we can get into. But it's an imperfect film, but it's it's a movie that I think I will be thinking about and trying to wrap my head around for mm-hmm. a very long time. I actually wrote a piece for Slash Film about that, about how stepping out of the theater, I just was like, I don't even know what I think about yeah, this movie. Yeah. It's hard to have a, a first impression. I've heard other people say that also. I think it's one that you kind of have to mull over a bit. Yeah. It's a complicated movie. It's a long movie. Uh, mm-hmm. There is so much going on. Um, I, I think justifiably you could say like if they had trimmed it a little, maybe it would have been a tighter horror movie. But at the same time, I don't, I'm not sure if it, if you started trimming some of the historical stuff, uh, would that have really created the tapestry, you know, uh, Guadagnino is actually going for here. Um it's it's really interesting. Like there's just so much going on. Uh, I was also thinking of uh, Blade Runner 2049 in terms yes. of how that is a such a dense and rich and sort of impossible sequel. Um, I, I had no hope that that movie would be any good uh, leading up to it. And then by the time we got it, it was such a perfect follow up to Blade Runner. And personally, I find it uh, even a better film in many ways because it's a much more focused yeah. and knows what it wants to be. It has a great dialogue with the original. I feel like this movie has a lot of that going on, too. It's definitely building on things we saw in the original movie. Um, but then it's totally doing its own thing. Um, I can understand the color palette complaint. Um, I kind of had the same complaint with Blade Runner 2049 and like just the music is very different. It's not, uh, you know, it's not Vangelis. But at the same time, I can understand why that movie sounds different and you can definitely understand why this movie looks different because it's doing a very different thing. It's not, it's not really as impressionistic as Argento's version. Uh, this feels more, I'm not sure what you'd call it, but it's more in the art house style, uh, more of like what we expect from Guadagnino. And I, I don't know. It's surprising to see this movie come from him, uh, right after call me by your name. Like that's, what's really surprising to me. Right. I think it's like, you know, where where Argento's version is very like stylistically avant-garde, this mm-hmm. is more thematically um avant-garde, like it's just so bold. And I think that that's kind of why the color palette is mostly subdued is because it lets the story and the themes really shine and really dominate. Um and I I keep calling I keep going back to this one, you know, I Dave already mentioned I wrote that like massive essay for Birth Movies Death, which is crazy long. Um, <laughs> and great which, piece, by the way. Everybody should go read it after you see the movie. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but one of the things I mentioned in there is is a line in the film that I just keep kind of going back to when I want to describe it, which is that there's a scene early in the movie where Tilda Swinton's Madame Blanc is is gathering the students and is saying, you know, like she wants to start work on a new piece and it's about rebirths. And the inevitable pull that they exert in our efforts to resist them. And I think like so much of that and so much of the way that she describes this piece really relates to our relationship to remakes and how we perceive them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like we're drawn to them, but we also resist them. Um, And I wouldn't call this a remake like at all. I wouldn't even call it a reimagining really. I would use her words and call it a rebirth. Mm it's really been like rebirthed for a, a different con- It's like, it's recontextualizing a lot of that stuff and the setting, which you mentioned, it takes place in 1977 Berlin during Ger- German autumn. So there's like all the stuff with like Bader Meinhof and the RAF. And there's a lot of like 
turmoil and like division. It's like where Bowie went and recorded that like first series of albums. And uh, it's where he recorded heroes, like in the shadow of the wall. I mean, it's a very specific time and place. Like, and although it's kind of in the background in the movie, it's still really important. And it really reflects a lot of what's going on at the school itself too. Yeah. I was going to say, say that one of the most interesting things um, about it is that the reason to include the kind of the history of 1977 Berlin is because it mimics exactly what's happening inside of uh, the Marcos dance company mm-hmm. um, just in terms of kind of an evolution of sorts um, contending with the past uh, having to answer for <laughs> passivity passivity. Is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think what's also really interesting here too, is that the, uh, the dancing, the, the <laughs> like key feature of this company is actually fully on display in this version, and it's astounding. Like mm-hmm. I, I think the the choreography is fantastic. Some of the pieces are great. Um, there's one sequence early on, which I'll save fully describing till spoilers. But there's one sequence early on that's cross cut with something super extreme, and I just had my jaw open because it yes. felt like we were watching something completely insane in what was ostensibly like a, an art house movie up until then, because of the look and the feel of it, it felt like, and th- th- I think that's part of it, uh, why the color is so subdued too. It's like, Oh, this is, you know, this feels like a nice, you know, chill, uh, German movie about the seventies or something. It's not going to get too crazy, not going to get too violent. And then things go insane pretty quickly. And I think you really feel the effect of that, even though you were expecting maybe something muted, especially for somebody who doesn't know what Suspiria actually is. Uh, but yeah, I have to say the choreography, the dancing all around, um, all these sequences are gorgeous to watch. Uh, they look incredibly intricate. And yeah, uh, as you were saying too, um, I think thematically appropriate in in a direct way that the original wasn't. I think in the original, they were just doing ballet, ballet, right? Like nothing, yeah, yeah. it didn't feel anything specific didn't feel like uh, the songs or anything they were dancing to was even like thematically tied to the actual movie. Right. And that scene that you talk about, the one that's kind of contrasting these two things going on, something really like unrelenting about it. It's just very mm-hmm. long. <laughs> like you, it's very you long. Really, it, it tortures you sort of as you're watching it. You can't look away. It doesn't allow you like, you know, sometimes with horror movies, you can kind of cover your eyes for a minute and it's over. And this one like really evokes like all senses. <laughs> you can't even cover <laughs> your eyes. Sound design is pretty insane. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that one soon. Yeah. Uh, but I guess before we get to spoilers, anything else specifically folks want to mention? Uh, I, I just want to like uh, throw a shout out there to, to Dakota Johnson, who's been, you know, kind of great this year between this and uh, what was it? Um, the Bad El Royale. Times. Yeah. Bad times at El Royale. Like it is, uh, she's on fire. Um, and I think, um, I'm not sure about her dancing background, but she was very convincing throughout a lot of those sequences. So, yeah, no, I think she's <laughs> great. And I think that, um, you know, I didn't, I did not care for bad times and I think that she's like sort of misused in that, but I overall uh, am a big fan of her. I think she's fantastic in this and that she's really great in a bigger splash. And I think she's like a reason to see the 50 shades movies like because she's actually <laughs> she's quite charming you know she's and, char- i remember the first one being funny in a way yeah, mostly she's because funny. of her she's very yeah. self-aware um so i really like her and i i really love her sort of timidity in this where she, mm-hmm. she her voice sounds uh like a sigh 
and I think that there's a very specific reason for that. But um, that to me, that's what it just evokes is I just think of just like this fresh, peaceful sigh. And just, you know, it's so nice. And yeah. she's sort of like hypnotic in that way. Um, I don't know that there's anything else that I can really talk about. And Tilda Swinton being awesome, but we'll talk more, yes. I guess, about the specific awesomeness uh, in spoilers. Right. Here. I will. I did want to point out though that she is very directly inspired. Her look is very directly inspired by Pina Bausch, yes, who uh-huh. uh, was a modern dancer and choreographer, and um, that has a really interesting sort of tie as well because Pina Bausch was inspired by Mary Wigman, who was sort of this like um, progenitor of modern dance and this all ties back into Carl Jung who was really influenced by this idea of interpretive dance and using that to sort of work out uh, psychology uh, and, and it's and psychoanalysis and stuff. And um, so it's all really interesting because then you can kind of tie that into the, the character of Joseph Klemper, the, the psychoanalyst in the film. And he has a Carl Jung book on his desk and he sort of mm-hmm. looks like Carl Jung. So it all just kind of like ties together. <laughs> yeah. I think one thing um, you mentioned right in your piece is that, there's a lot of there's a lot of psychoanalysis going on, or at least like theoretical explorations here. There's a lot of Jung. Yes. There's a lot of Freud. Yes. Um, yeah. Whereas I can't in the original. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can read certain things into it, but it's it didn't it never felt like it was going to that level. It was just like here here's a very beautiful scene and a great score, and I'm gonna try to scare you with this aesthetic rather than with this theme. Or with these ideas, whereas this movie is throwing a lot of ideas at you, I think. It's very psychological and Mm -hmm. it's all very deliberately designed that way because there's something just far more terrifying about those concepts, specifically Freud's idea of the uncanny and that which is like familiar but not quite. And to really dig into that like deeper stuff, like all that psychic stuff is, I think more terrifying than some of the things that are in Argento's film. Like it is again, like it's the visual versus the figurative. Definitely. And I honestly, like, I don't want to compare the movies too much, but I really want to know, um, does, you know, does the original still hold up for you folks? Like, or does it like, is it more the feeling of seeing it for the first time that really works? Cause I just rewatched it this week and it's still, like, I love the score. I love the look of it. But it just feels like, as a movie, it doesn't do much for me, still. Right. I don't know. I mean, I haven't rewatched the um, original since seeing the new one. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that it would really affect... I, I kind of consider them separate entities. Like, yeah. even though they are, uh, you know, like Britt said, in conversation with one another in certain aspects, um, I think, I, I don't know, they're just very separate <laughs> for me. Yeah, same. I mean, like, the, I'm, I'm, I don't think that seeing the new one would really affect how I feel about the original. I mean, and also, if you wanted to get, like, really technical about mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. you could say that this is a readaptation in its own way because Argento took the mythology of the three mothers from right, Thomas, right. Squin- Thomas, Dis- Thomas de Quincey's Suspiria de Profundis. Um, <laughs> That's a great name. Wow. I know. And so, uh, and that's where like this idea of the three mothers who are, who predate um, God and the devil and, and religion comes, comes from. And so he took that and incorporated it into his mythology for the mother of tears trilogy mm-hmm. or the three mothers trilogy, uh, which ends with mother of tears. And like, honestly, Argento's films 
like like Suspiria is great, Inferno's okay, Mother of Tears is garbage. Like they just keep getting worse. <laughs> so I would be really interested to see if if Luca actually does a, tr- a full trilogy, which I know he's mentioned, oh, and man. how exactly like that would play out. Like would it, would they keep getting better or <laughs> where are we going? <laughs> and now it's time to move on to spoilers. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. Now I think we can dive a little deeper. Let's talk about that first scene, or at least that first crazy (laughs) dancing scene, because my jaw was open during that. And I looked around. I was watching it at BAM here in Brooklyn. And I love watching freaky ass things uh, in a in a quiet art house, you know, because it's a lot of it, it's some older folks. It's some folks who don't know what they're really getting into because they just live around here and they'll come see everything. So I loved looking around, seeing everybody slowly freaking out about what was going on. Yeah, I saw it. We saw it at Fantastic Fest for the um, secret screening. So we saw it, I think, like among the first people to see it. And um I was sitting next to a bunch of like film critics <laughs> during it. And literally one guy, like when it was all, when that scene was over, just turned around and went, Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> just was like, totally, you know, uh, just like the people that you don't think can be super surprised or made uncomfortable by those things yep. at a horror yep. like festival, even like you could just feel like size. <laughs> what I really love about it. I mean, as grotesque as it is, but there's, it's just so fascinating. Like you were saying earlier, like, you can't look away, and I think that's part of the reason why they they intercut it with the dancing. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from the fact that it's her actual dancing yeah. that is casting the spell, but it's like yeah. because it compels you. You want to see this dancing. You want to, it. It's incredible, but then you're like also having to watch this horrible <laughs> contortion, this like internal beating and pulverizing of this woman. And I, what I think is really fascinating about it is that her body never breaks. Like, I mean, it right. breaks inside, but like her skin never breaks. So she's, right. it's all internalized, which I think again is like a, it's another metaphorical thing where mm-hmm, it's just like, mm-hmm. it's this internalized trauma that the, a woman is experiencing. And then you have Susie sort of making it literal in dance and interpreting it in a way. And I just think it's, I mean, for as gross as it is, there's this like beauty to it, which I think it also really describes the spirit. Like there's just it's so hideous and beautiful. Yeah. yeah, most definitely. I think uh, what's also fascinating about that whole sequence is that, you know, technically it's very, it is pretty simple aside from like the great effects work. Um, but it's mainly, you know, great choreography, uh, Dakota Johnson's dancing and then the editing. And it's the way the editing like compact, like, it feels like that scene is edited like a fight scene, you know, like yeah. somebody mm-hmm. throws a punch and then somebody takes the hit and somebody throws a punch and somebody takes a hit. And like, it's that over and over again. And it's so visceral. The sound design is insane. You can hear every bone crunching because yes, nothing is breaking the skin, but it's all breaking inside. Um, yeah. It was just harrowing. And also, yeah. Another part that's like kind of insane with all of that is that, 
like I said, it's a really long scene. Like you really have to like mm-hmm. go through it. And mm-hmm. then as soon as you think it's over, cause her body's all twisted and concord- like contorted and it feels like it's over. Then comes the scene with like the hooks <laughs> where she's getting <laughs> hacked up. It's like literally, I feel like it's like 20 minutes of the movie of just this woman's body getting completely destroyed. Oh man. I was, too- <clears throat> so I was, I did a bad thing today and I read some comments, but oh. <laughs> in my defense, it was on the, the essay that I wrote and birth movies, death commenters are usually pretty good, but somebody was calling me out because I made a point of bringing up how the women in this film that we see that are, are hurt by the coven or specifically by Madame Marcos. So you have like Patricia played by Chloe Grace Moritz, who I think is incredible in this and her mm-hmm. part is so small, but I think very pivotal, pivotal. And then you have uh, Olga, the dancer, who gets completely pulverized. When you see them again later in that third act, I mean, like, they still have not... All of their injuries are still internal. And I think that that says so much about what happens next during that climax and why it's happening. And somebody was trying to call me out and saying, like, oh, but they put those hooks into Olga. And I'm like, yeah, okay, they broke her skin, but we still yeah. didn't see any bloodletting from that, which is the and point. And they actually, the, the point they said was don't injure her, right? Yeah. They, they said don't injure Olga as they were, like, picking her up with the uh, the sickles uh, yeah. or whatever whatever those are called. That was really interesting. It did feel sort of like uh, something you do to, like, uh, game meat or something that you hunted and you don't yes. want to like, destroy the beautiful meat, uh, but you want to like, you know, carry it and make it easier to move around or something. Yeah. And it's very clear that like Marcos is still doing something with them mm-hmm. down in that basement corridor. Like she's yeah. suckling something out of them. Well, and like the <laughs> ambiguity of like what they're being stored down there for is Ooh. so creepy. Like you don't, you don't really ever find out. Mm-hmm. I don't think, um, it's just like this cavern of twisted bodies. It's really disgusting. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you could also read it as sort of like an aging uh, star collecting these young ingenues, right? And right. just feeding off of their talent and everything. Yeah, there's I mean, there's so much like, going on there. There's a component, too, of like the intersection between like, you know, art and commerce and the corporatization of art. And, you know, it's like she's become this corrupt aging power that is just like not interested in the art anymore and isn't interested. And she's only interested in herself. She's completely self-serving, which then I think goes back to also, I mean, you have, I guess now we can talk about the three Tildes. So you have Tilda mm-hmm, Swinton mm-hmm. playing three roles and each is representative of a different component of the psyche in Freud's definition. So you have um, Marcos, which is the id, which is like all self-serving, all impulse, like all greed, all irrational. And then you have um, Tilda as Klemperer, which is the superego. And it's very much about like your moral compass and um, inherited ideas of morality. And then you have Tilda as Madame Blanc. And she's just the ego and she sort of mediates between the id and the outside world and sort of has to satisfy the id while also like keeping it in check because it refuses to accept reality as what it is. Just seeing here, uh, the Tilda, I I think her performances across all those uh, roles are really interesting. But yeah, do you guys have anything, uh, any other thoughts, I guess, on how she, she performed them? Because it did seem... I know, very different. I heard like she really tried to gain character as Klemperer, right? And tried to really embody 
the you know uh, being in the body of a man uh, i think she had a prosthetic penis i'm not she sure did. if i just read that wrong yeah yeah no she it, did <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, I think you can see that in how she's walking, but she's also like walking like an older man too. So there's a lot going on there. Um, any thoughts of like, I guess it's the idea of he's the one really crucial guy in this movie, right. played by a woman, and I found that kind of interesting as well. Yeah, um, I this is when I get to kind of complain a little bit mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because that was kind of the thing maybe the the main clumper as a character was right. my main problem with the movie. Um, just in that the movie opens and closes on this, this male character played by Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I realize there's a lot of meta commentary going on. Um, I know Britt and I both talked to the screenwriter um, who was really fascinating and he sort of, uh, I know when I talked to him, he informed me that kind of my, what my suspicion was, which is that it's sort of, um, the men telling the story sort of putting this meta character in there and learning mm-hmm. how to like almost uh i don't know using it as like a vessel to kind of explore their guilt <laughs> when it comes to um how they've interacted with women in the past and, so that's and him how... and luca yes think? yeah okay. yes yeah gotcha. i mean I, I guess i can't speak for him and luca but i know yeah. that was he said it was an intentional um thing and i think that's that's interesting um I guess for me in this story that's so powerfully feminine, I just didn't really care <laughs> about <laughs> that. And I think it's an interesting choice that uh, another old way, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though, because it's like, I, I wanted to know so much more about this coven and, and the women in there. And instead we spend so much of the movie with Klemperer who, you know, I, I understand that they need a witness for their ceremony and there's a lot of reasons to have him there. Kind of observing the story, but it does feel like a man <laughs> kind yeah. of inserting himself into the story about women, uh, yeah. and the fact that it like in the end there's kind of this beat where uh, Dakota Johnson's character you know sort of forgives him. I just think it's a, a, an interesting choice that didn't totally <laughs> gel with me. That seemed like a little much. It, it to me it seemed like he was a great supporting character. It never felt like he was leading the story because right. he's the one like you know. Um, Chloe Grace Moretz's character comes to him, you know, and he's responding. He's trying to be an ally and trying to help figure out where her character is. Um, But yeah, there is a lingering idea, too, about his own failure as a man and not listening to the women in his life before they're really in danger. Um, I also I mean, I know you asked about the performance. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I think it's it is very interesting what Britt was saying about like this kind of the three, the ego, super ego id. thing and using Tilda as a choice for that. I guess I just still don't really like feel that it was necessary for her right, to be right. this male character to the point that I found it incredibly distracting at times. And the first time when we first saw it, they were still selling it under the guise that this was like not Tilda playing right. the man. Even though he sounds exactly like Tilda Swinton. Yeah. So good luck right. hiding it's that. Like, it's extremely obvious, but also <laughs> like you don't know for sure. So like on first viewing, I could only really think about that in those <laughs> scenes. Um, and was just like looking for, for things to the point where I don't know that I was even paying attention to certain aspects. So that was kind of weird for me. I'm going to very strongly disagree (laughs) 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 because I, I find that having Tilda play Klemperer is, is sort of narratively necessary. And I think that, so to my mind, what it's doing is that it does make the story entirely feminine 
Because right. it's like, okay, by necessity of this narrative we've created, we have to have this male role because that speaks to the way that men interact with women and their trauma. And Klemper is somebody who does carry the survivor's guilt. And from having his wife, like he didn't send her away in time and she was taken by the Nazis. Um, and so he has this whole story where it's like, at this very crucial time in his life, he was a passive witness when he had the op- had the opportunity to be an active witness, and mm-hmm. he chose not to until it was too late. And now he's put in this position again, where he has an opportunity again to be an active witness and isn't really acting in time. And so, something that when I spoke to the screenwriter David, he pointed out to me that he feels like Klemper is a very anti male role, and that as a male character, you feel as though he has all of this like inherent privilege. Like he has this authority. Mm -hmm. Um, but in that final act in the ceremony, he is the, the tragedy of that for him is that he's rendered a passive witness. Like now is the time where he could have done something and the women have made it impossible for him. Now they've placed him in a position where he's put so many of the women in his life, right? Where, you know, he if he walks out of there and says, like, starts babbling about fucking witches and rituals and shit, people are going to look at him the way he looked at Patricia, mm-hmm. which is that he's delusional. And I think that there's a really important line that is said to him when he's being taken down to the, um, I guess, the ceremony. Yeah, as they drag him in. Like, oh, so after yeah. the sequence where they impersonate his wife, which how goddamn how that is one of the it's most mean. crushing things I've seen this year. Yeah. So, yeah. Mean. But they have that line to him, which is that women tell you these things Mm -hmm. and you don't pity them. You tell them they're delusional. I do like that line. That line is so great. And it just really cuts to the heart of how they feel about him and putting him. I mean, like you make him a witness to this ritual. You're making him a witness to this theater of female pain that he has ignored, which is again, why I feel like throughout the film, like with Olga and with Patricia, we don't really see all these injuries that they're feeling on the inside, all this internalized trauma, because to someone like him, it isn't real until he can actually see it until it's made literal. And even through this interpretive dance that he sees, he still doesn't get it. But then he goes down during this black Sabbath ritual and they just cut these girls open and make their wounds real to him. And now it's like, it's at a point where it's too late. Like he couldn't do anything even if he tried. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to say though, that I don't feel like, I do not feel like Susie is absolving him in that final scene, I don't think it's a thing of absolution or forgiveness. I don't think she's doing it out of pity. It's an act of benevolence. Like it is very indifferent to him and it's a, it's a form of punishment in a way. And there is no, in her mind, it is justice Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and justice is not good or bad, right or wrong. It just is. And in her mind, it is just the right thing to do is to erase all of these memories from his mind and to render him essentially blind. Hmm. Yeah. And we were talking, um, you're mentioning so much about how this is a very, you know, uh, women focused movie. But yeah, it's directed by Luca Guadagnino. It's written (laughs) by David Kajganich. Um, How do you both feel about such a, you know, essentially female story and female led story. How do you feel about this being interpreted by them? Do you think it would have been, 
uh, do you think a female uh, screenwriter or director would have helped interpret the story better? Uh, it's kind of a tough thing because I love this movie as it is, but I also feel like we, we're missing something. And this feels like what we're talking about, the Tom York decision, too. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm stuck on this movie because I feel the same way as you do, which is I, I love this movie. I want to love it even more. And I think I could with a little bit more of that. It felt to me, it still feels a little distant in its femininity. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel authentic in some ways, if that makes sense. It, it's not a knock to them. It's not that it doesn't feel male gazy or or anything like that. It's not offensive to me. But um, I do feel like it's missing a quintessential sort of feminine power and kind of bouncing off the Klemper thing again, part of why that takes me out of the movie just a little bit, even with all those great points, which I do agree to a lot with the, you know, making women or making a male witness to like this female horror is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, But it feels a lot like the filmmakers reckoning with the fact that it's, that it's men telling the story (laughs) and (laughs) I feel like if you have to work that hard to kind of like justify why you're getting to tell this story, like with an insert character to me, it kind of says, yeah, maybe a woman should have had some kind of handling in this, at least in the score. <laughs> That's like at least one of those three things. At least I in think. the score, or at least in the vocals of the score. Come on, Tom York. <laughs> I love your voice, but uh, I don't I know. To, to their credit. I mean, I do agree to an extent that, like, I, do, I cannot help but wonder what the film would have been like if a woman had written and or directed it. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I can't help but feel that. But, you know, I have seen other films where men directed incredibly honest and amazing female stories, uh, like Eighth Grade and Under the Skin. Annihilation. And Annihilation. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like... Uh, and it is something again to go back to to go back to Freud and Jung, but specifically Jung uh, and his ideas of um, the archetypes is that within every male is a female energy, and with every female is a male energy. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's often like for men, that female energy is often repressed by society, and they're told it's wrong to be in touch with that. So I think that men like Luca and David are in touch with that, and to their credit they did work very closely with a female choreographer. And when mm-hmm. David was writing it, I mean, he knew nothing about dance, especially modern dance. He fully immersed himself in nothing but female choreography because he only wanted movements that were feminine. Mm-hmm. Also, those the nightmares that um, Susie has were all influenced by female photographers. Kind of to the detriment. I know they've, they're yeah. going through a lawsuit with one of them, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, at least I do think that they put in the work to try to insert as much feminine energy as I can. And I do want to say, I don't think that like men shouldn't be able to tell stories about women. That's not my point. But um, sometimes you just, you can feel it. I think, you know, anyone who's uh, maybe misrepresented in films uh, can agree with that. Sometimes you just watch something and you, you don't connect with it as much as you know you would if it felt like, you were being <laughs> represented more story-wise. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's not a, it doesn't ruin the movie for me at all, but it is something where it's almost a, a little bit of disappointment for me where it's like, I think I could worship at the altar of this movie if I just, yeah, it's just like a little nagging thing. Like even the cinematographer is um, a guy that uh, Guadagnino yeah. has worked with before for quite a few movies. And like, even there, I, I think there, there would have been room for at least the person, you know, visualizing everything to put their lens right. on it. 
Um, before we wrap up, I do want to break down the whole final sequence with you folks. Um, <laughs> just because I think things get kind of confusing and kind of weird, yeah. uh, which I'm fully into embracing like the insanity of head explosions and, you know, <laughs> ultraviolence and everything. But I think like narratively, um, Susie and uh, Madame Blanc take a weird turn towards the very <laughs> end, like where they seem almost uh, like uh, like they're friends or like they're in love with each other. And I feel like the movie didn't build up to that at all. It seemed like we just kind of approached that abruptly. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And then also the crazy ending. Well, it's it's a mother-daughter relationship yeah. or a mentor-mentee. I mean, honestly, this is the Star is Born remake we deserve. Right, and, right. Okay, okay. I get that. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, that that climax to me is so intentionally hideous. And that was the thing I struggled with when I first saw it was I wasn't really sure how to feel about this, like, really garish, like, aggressively ugly. I mean, it's the only time where Argento's, like, color palette comes into play at all. Yeah. And I think that that is, it's so intentional, and it's not meant to be pleasant, because, again, it's a confrontation. They're confronting Mm -hmm. each other. They're confronting Klemper. Um, So it's not meant to to look nice really yeah. it seems also like it's sort of like the kill bill thing where they switch the color palette so yeah. it's not just all blood and guts in full color because that then be this would be too, an x-rated yeah. movie or something um there was that great shot of uh Susie basically ripping her chest open that was in a lot of the promo materials which i feel like we didn't quite get in this yeah, movie unfortunately, yeah. because of the coloring so i was i was just sitting and waiting for that because i'm a sick person i guess that's the sort of thing <laughs> i wait for um, well, it almost yeah. kind of neuters it because in the promos it yeah. literally looks like a vagina yeah. and in yeah. the movie yeah. it just kind of looks like a rip in her chest it's yeah it looks like a rip chest. in her chest with like weird blood stuff I don't know it's like really hard to see exactly what's going on but um, I mean that whole sequence I know it's confusing for some people I've had a lot of people ask me to sort of explain to them what happens um, because basically Marcos is revealed to be a fraud Susie right. asks her you know, for which of, which of the mothers were you anointed? Um, you know, who anointed you and for which of the mothers were you named? And she says, Mother Suspiriorum. And you can see she's like thinking and she's not really sure of herself. And she's totally looking like she's full of shit. And then Susie's like, I am she. And, and like Marcos is like, fuck. So <laughs> because and also, I mean, when did that happen? What? Well, it's, so it's it's like it's a it's a. On a very basic surface level, it's a story of a woman coming into her own power. Right. And then for Susie also, somebody who never really had a great relationship with her mother, had this really repressed, um, emotionally traumatic relationship with her mother, um, and is clearly seeking a mother figure and has found it in Blanc. Mm-hmm. But she's coming into this realization that she is her own mother, that she can take care of herself, and that she right. has this this power. So it's a moment of empowerment for her. But it's also that she was chosen. And so yeah. then you then you get into this whole idea of like fate and being drawn to something and you get into like this mystical idea, which again goes back into like the Jungian ideas of archetypes. And so for as much as she was predetermined or destined mm-hmm. to go there and she was called there and transformed into Mother Suspiriorum. It's also, it was a lot of choice too. It's, you know, it's not either or, it's it's both. And right. 
um, it's what Jung called individuation. It's the moment where you take all of these parts of your personality that you repressed because they didn't fit into to the archetypes that society deemed um, acceptable, and you free them. So you become liberated, and so all of your flaws and everything are on full display, and you've fully incorporated them, and you've united all of these parts of yourself. So the con- the personal unconscious, the collective unconscious, the self or the ego, it's all become one. It's a union, and it's, it's then you become the true self. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens to her in that final moment is she achieves individuation yeah it's also i mean it's also a scene that brings together all the themes we were talking about before about um kind of the timeline of when it's set so there's all this radical stuff going on outside and this is like the moment of radicalization of the coven (laughs) is through her kind of accepting herself and that's when they basically rewrite the rules in that scene yeah um contending with the past and uh forging a new future (laughs) I feel like there was me, you know, I'm fine with plots not being, you know, step by step and not fully connecting logically sometimes. But I feel like uh, I just needed one more thing, like one more <laughs> sense of awakening uh, with sure. Susie to, to like see where she was going or her step towards that awakening, uh, because it seemed kind of abrupt after a certain point. But maybe I just need to rewatch the movie because that's what it sounds like. It sounds like I need to see this movie a couple more times. Yes. Um, and you also but, need to and, see Suspiria too, which apparently oh they boy. want to make. So. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, hope I mean, I, I hope they do. I mean, I hope it, if they do, I really hope it follows like the trilogy pattern. Because, yeah. I mean, in this you see, again, like threes are so important. Three tildes, super ego, id and ego. Mm-hmm. The three mothers, um, all the of that. <laughs> the three tildes, uh, and you know, you you do kind of get the sense that it very much is playing with this. Like, there's so Mother Tenebrarum, Mother Lacerarum, um, Mother Suspiriarum, Mother Suspiriarum, mm-hmm. and <laughs> Mother Size, Mother of Darkness, Mother of Tears, and I think we kind of see the Mother of Darkness. Um, crawling around i'm still not entirely sure if that that shadow creature is the mother of darkness or if that is i'm leaning more towards the fact that it's like Susie's shadow self which would be another archetype and it mm. is suspiriorum and it's hmm. they're sort of because you see them sort of acting psychically in tandem like it's exploding all the heads. I need to see it this again too, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I was paying like extra close attention when I saw it again last night to especially that final scene because it's so bananas. Uh, there's just so much going on. But I also, I really have to mention this because it just like delights me to no end. That like oftentimes when you watch like really fucked up movies and some like crazy ass scene happens and there's this, yeah. like blood and gore and you're like who cleans this up after? I love <laughs> that like in this movie after this entire freaking like Black Sabbath scene and all these exploding heads we see the witches like cleaning it up. Like uh, <laughs> another one. Yeah. yeah. Like ugh. <laughs> ah, so, job never ends here. <laughs> Brent and Lindsay, is there anything else you want to mention about this movie uh, that I think we all kind of love to varying degrees? Yeah, um, not really. I think maybe my only thing that we didn't really talk about is uh, Mia Goth, who I thought yes. was fantastic yes. in this movie. Um, She's quite good, yeah. Yeah, I almost wish that she'd played Susie, controversial opinion. Ooh. But, um, I, I just, I've always, like, kind of been aware of her, but never really, like, fully 
loved her, I guess. And this was when I was like, oh, she's great. <laughs> yeah. What's the Gore Verbinski movie? I a Cure for a Wellness. Cure for Wellness. Yeah, I remember oh her. God, Lindsay, you will love that movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. That movie, I feel like, was made for you, Lindsay. You, yeah, yeah be all no, it's, over like, it. it's like 10 movies in one. So, like, if you don't like one movie, just, like, wait five minutes wait. and you'll love the next one. Yeah, that's our next discussion, right? But, yeah, go back and listen to that review because that was a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, Mia Goth, shout out to her. Um, I thought she she also looks very different. And maybe I think it's just, like, a couple years later. Or maybe she um, uh, prepared differently for this movie. But, yeah, she I think she did a great role here. And uh, she has the unfortunate... Uh, you know, luck of being the person who has to go exploring the house yeah. and counting the steps, mm-hmm. and there's Get that one, uh, that one scene where she just like her leg slips into darkness and her Ugh. leg breaks. Uh, her scream, her scream, yeah. like yeah. I looked around my theater once again, and everyone's just shivering yeah. uh, <laughs> of her pain. Oh, it's insane. Ugh. Okay, well, thank you, Britt and Lindsay, for reviewing this movie with me. Uh, where can we find you on the internet these days, Britt? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Miss Britt Hayes. Um, and I am doing a lot of freelance work right now. Yeah, uh, freelance work, you know? Yeah. yeah. Freelance work. So um, you can find me at Birth Movies Death. I will be working on some stuff some other places. And I will be publishing that on my Twitter when it's made available. I don't want to spoil it just yet. <laughs> and Lindsay? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter also at Lindsay Romaine. Um, I write also, I'm a freelancer, so I'm kind of all over the place. Um, I've written, I know we talked a lot about Hill House. I've written a ton of stuff about Hill House for um, both Nerdist and Vulture. Um, I also write regularly for Slash Film and Thrillist. So yeah, I'll post everything on my Twitter also. Oh, also, um, I do have one more quick plug. Yes. Um, if you are in Austin or are planning on being in Austin on November 28th, I am hosting not one, but two screenings of the unrated director's cut of The House That Jack Built, the new Lars von Trier movie. And that's at the Alamo Draft House on South Lamar. I believe there are still tickets available for the later show. Um, so if you want to come see a, another movie that reckons with, uh, <laughs> its own maleness, that's but a Thanksgiving a... treat. Seeing yeah. Lars von Trier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely come check that out. Nice. And as always, you guys can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra. I write about techandgadget.com. I'm off for a couple of weeks, uh, on paternity leave. Uh, but yeah, you can keep an eye on my Twitter for baby photos and random tech thoughts and stuff. As always, you can email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com and we'll be back next week i believe we'll be reviewing overlord see you then all right everyone welcome to the slash film cast after dark and jeff cannot is here jeff wow you just hey. re- reappeared here. Uh, Out of I, nowhere. I, we've recorded this podcast at a completely separate time than when we did the Suspiria episode. So mm. um, you are now available after your BlizzCon adventures. I'm only available after dark. Mm. That's right. Some crazy stuff went down at BlizzCon. I heard they announced a, a mobile game and everyone lost their mind. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, you can find out more about that on my video game podcast, DLC, if you want. It, it was... Uh, uh, you know what gets a, me really angry is when people announce mobile games. <laughs> yeah, well, evidently you would fit right in. Yeah, um, yeah. It, uh, it it seems like a disproportionate reaction to my mind, but uh, I also 
not super excited about a mobile game version of Diablo, but that didn't mean that the company slapped me in the face or any of the other hyperbolic responses, uh, histrionic, dramatic, self-involved responses that I seem to be oh. getting. Uh, this is why I love ignoring the internet right now. <laughs> it's, it's pretty great. Yeah. So speaking of uh, histrionic responses uh, to minor news, AMC mm. Stubbs A-List. That's that's why we're here on this after dark is because you know you know what I, I was not going to record any episode about uh, any content about <laughs> AMC Stubbs A-List, but you know what someone said on on Twitter, Jeff? Yes. Um, what did they say, David? Someone said. Hey, I, w- I really wish you would record a segment on AMC Stubbs changes today because that's my limericks. Oh, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, uh, it's isn't this the uh, the the service that w- shall not speak its name? Didn't you vow never to speak its name? No, 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 uh, no. My wife vowed never to speak its name because she was tired mm-hmm. of me saying I'm on the A list all the time. Ah, um, ah, ah, I-, I still say A list all the time. You still so, say uh, AMC Stubbs A list, and it's. Full form. Yes. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I often say I am a member of the AMC Stubbs A-List. Oh, look, that, that little uh, special line at the theater. Um, it is for AMC Stubbs A-List members. Okay, so for those who don't know, AMC Stubbs A-List is a uh, U.S.-only uh, movie club where basically you pay $20 uh, per month and you can see up to three movies per week. Uh, I have reviewed this service on, uh, on SlashFilm.com. I'm a big fan of it. And... It announced some changes today, uh, and I, I just think this email is extraordinary. Every paragraph of this email could be taken as a rebuke of MoviePass. Every single paragraph. Right? <laughs> it's pretty great, yeah. So I'll read a couple paragraphs, and then we, we can react. But uh, and we're putting this in the After Dark out of consideration for the 99% of you who don't give a crap about Stubbs A-List. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I certainly am a big fan. Now, let me ask you, um, Jeff, you are a, 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 an A-List member along with me, yes, right? Indeed I am. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this before on the show, but there is an AMC <laughs> right across the street from my house. I've never met E-Gads. I've never, yeah. never said this. Um, so it's, uh, it works out really well for me to be an AMC Stubbs A-List member uh, because – I, I can just jaunt across the street anytime I want to watch a movie, and I don't have to wait in any of those pesky lines. Or, Is jaunt uh, a verb? Can you jaunt somewhere? Anyway, yes. I think so. Um, Devendra, are you A-list right now? Yeah, you, definitely. Okay, okay, cool. We're all part of the other. Okay, here we go. So I got an email from AMC today. It says, on be- quote, on behalf of everyone at AMC Theaters, thank you for being one of our very first AMC Stubbs A-listers. When we launched A-list back in June, we did so with the idea that movie going could and should be more accessible, convenient, and affordable Candidly, we are blown away and appreciative that so many movie fans throughout the United States have agreed in just four and a half months from the program's launch, more than 500,000 people will have joined A-List. Already, after only a few months' time, one in every ten guests at an AMC theater across the country is a member of the A-List, and that number seems to grow every day. Okay, so let's stop here for a second. 500,000, that is the first time they've announced to that number, I think. Um, That seems surprisingly low, given, I don't know, given the potential market there, but okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not all theaters, right? It's not like, it's not like theoretically MoviePass. Um, uh, And MoviePass, I think at its peak was what, five uh, million or something, something, Mm -hmm. three million? It was like three million, something like that, three million. Um, So it's not like that far behind what MoviePass was at its peak. Right. Um, Let's see. Uh, MoviePass surpassed three million subscribers. In June, um, but I don't know if that was June of last year. Um, 
As of August 10th of 2017, MoviePass had 3.2 million subscribers, it looks like. Uh, no, no, no. August 10th of uh, 2018. So that was just a couple months ago. It had it had 3 yeah. million subscribers. Uh, or, or, it took um, them a while to hit 1 million, yeah. 3.2 million subscribers, yeah. So, um, so AMC's pretty far behind what MoviePass was at its peak, but like not, it's nothing to sneeze at. You know, it's on its way. Okay. So um, AMC stubs A-list for 20... Oh, also, here's what they say here in the opening... The second paragraph of this email. With other subscription services facing severe operational and financial headwinds, some had incorrectly speculated that the valuable benefits to you of A-List might not endure. To the contrary, we believe that A-List is a runaway success for AMC, and you'll likely be pleased to learn that AMC Stubbs A-List is here to stay. Let's stop there for a second. I think the idea was that AMC Stubbs A-List was always an experiment for them, and so they're not saying, like, hey, not an experiment anymore. Um, it's going to be around We're for out a of beta, while. baby. <laughs> yeah, we are coming out of beta. Um, so three announcements. Number one, a list has become a permanent, permanent feature uh, of AMC with all the benefits you've come to enjoy remaining fully impact, fully intact without any change. I'm just going to pause right there for a second. I- again, it's basically like they are just spitting in the face of MoviePass. <laughs> They're saying like, "Hey, that service that you like that changed like, 15 times in one month. Like we are not. We are doing the complete opposite of that." Uh, yeah. Nothing's changing. So. This is a multi-combo hit piece <laughs> against movie. Like every every sentence in this piece is like a punch. You, you know how it's like a multi- in, yeah, it's great. In Killer Instinct, you could do like a sixty-four yes, hit yes. combo. This is like a twenty-hit combo. <laughs> combo, <laughs> combo, combo. I I don't disagree with you guys about any of this, but I also I mean I don't want to uh, spoil anything about the end of this email, but uh, I do think it's it's. It's also a just a it's bad news described as uh, disguised as good news is what it is. I agree completely. Well, yeah. I, I, I agree. Yeah. That's that's the one thing I, do, I disagree. So point two they make here out of three points. You are so important to us that we will actually be enhancing the benefits we offer to A-list members. We are lowering the minimum age from A-listers from 18 to 16 and allowing households to use a common credit card as a payment method for separate individual A-list accounts. Uh, by June of 2019, so that more of you can book choice seats that you want online in advance, we will roll out reserve seating, uh, reserve seating to all of our AMC branded theaters and to all of our AMC dine-in branded theaters across the U.S. Reserve seating is not being introduced to AMC Classic branded theaters at this time. I, I, let's end quote right there. I don't know what AMC Classic is. I think this is like any old crappy AMC. Is I think guess. that's the they have some independent theaters, like oh. really really small ones that they buy. I've never seen yeah. those before. Um, I think. But, uh, yeah, so the, the original the, recipe before they changed the flavor. Yes. <laughs> this is actually a, uh, a common pain point was like if you're young, if you're, you know, if you're a young and mm-hmm. a teenager, you can sign up for A-list. And also, um, if you had a friend, like um, a wife or a partner or whatever, and you wanted to go see movies with A-list together, kind of a pain in the ass to like have different accounts. So uh it's cool that they are adding like new features and they say they're going to add more features to a list and the amc experience in the future so do you guys think that this means your significant others will get a list subscriptions at this point or will this uh, we have children dave mm. <laughs> yeah i guess that's true both of you now um it's so, uh yeah it makes it tough i guess yeah i guess that doesn't make any sense <laughs> the only reason i have to see a ton of movies is this uh this show you know, uh, my wife can join me once in a while, and now probably even less so. Yeah, mm. my wife used to like watching movies with me, and now, <laughs> you now she just gets to uh, be sad she can't come. Mm. That's a, that yep. sounds pretty sad. Um, yeah. So this email, so far, I'm like, wow, this is amazing, right? So far in this email, I'm like, this email's going from strength to strength right now. Yeah. Right? Are you guys pumped? Are you guys pumped? For <laughs> I'm so pumped. I'm like, news? at this point, I'm like so happy about my. I'm like, oh my gosh, it. I, not only. 
is it good? It's going to get even better. How, how could it get yeah. even better? Okay, number three, this thing that c- it could not possibly be too good to be true. Um, we are holding the line on the pricing of a list. So okay, I'm reading that sentence. I'm like, oh, that's great. I love it. Page just start, how how many months ago did it start? Like four months ago. Four, four months ago. So <laughs> we 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 came out with a price four months ago, and we are we put up our shield. Everybody wants us to raise those prices. It's like you just set the price. You literally just said it. So to be fair, they did say when when you signed up four months ago that they said they they are they will commit to that price for one year. That's what they said, yes. right? Yeah. One year from the moment you. Yep. jumped on. So if you didn't jump on until a month in or two months in, you're actually going to get that price longer than the rest of us. No, I actually don't think that's, I don't think that, oh yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it no, is, no. It is. no, no, I don't think that's right. I think you get one year from when you sign up. Um, and as long as you sign up before January that's what, 9th. That's what Jeff's saying. Yeah. Okay. So you're yeah, saying right. if you sign up earlier, so the later, get, yeah, the later ahead. you signed up, the longer it extends. Yeah. I got a year from when I signed up, I signed up on the first day. Somebody that signed up a month or two in gets a month or two more. It's still the same period. It's still a year, but uh, but it's longer. It will go later in time. You've created a time paradox for Dave, and his (laughs) brain is just like, yeah, yeah. My puny brain cannot comprehend. All Um, I'm saying is there there will be a couple of months where people are paying different prices for the same service. That's all I'm saying. That's completely correct. So. Uh, it says here, your monthly price of 1995 plus tax will remain unchanged for a full year from the date of your joining. In 35 states, the monthly price for new returning members will also stay unchanged at $20 plus tax. Given the popularity like, of growth. I like, I like those odds. I like those odds. <laughs> so, I mean, we really just it, – it, it's a huge chance that between the three of us, none of the states we're in are going to be impacted, right? Like, oh, yeah, because chance. I mean we're, we're, we're not in the most populated <laughs> metropolitan states. Huge, huge chance that our states, which don't have the you – know, that have some of the best theaters in the country – are going to be completely unaffected by this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so given the popularity and growth of A-List, we are making a modest price adjustment in a select number of locations. Uh, beginning January in 10 states, Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Maryland, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Washington. Ugh! Uh, Washington. I, you know what, though? DaVinci and I dodged the bullet on that one. Mm, okay. Yeah, you did. All <laughs> you right. did. Um, and uh, District of Columbia, the monthly price will rise only modestly. To twenty one ninety five plus tax, woo! Only two dollar increase, still a bargain, guys. Still Not too a bargain. Bad. Oh, but th- there's a little semicolon here, Jeff. It indicates that the sentence has not ended. What? What? While in five states, California, what? Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York, it will oh. go up to twenty three ninety five plus tax. Still, yeah. still a terrific bargain, given the yeah. cost of individual movie tickets there. <laughs> So what do, you, what do we think of the twenty three ninety five plus tax? Well, Dave, I think my thoughts can be best summed up in the form of a limerick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I literally wrote in the last two minutes while you were talking. Oh, nice. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. Okay, go. <laughs> Are you ready? Yep. AMC Stubbs A-List has been one of my favorites. Now there is news. They're raising their dues. They expect me to shut up and pay this? Nice. Awesome. But, yeah, I mean, for for like two nice. minutes of work, it's pretty good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the answer to my question of, is, of course, yes, I will shut up and pay this. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, here, here, I think the the price increase is totally fair. Like I've gotten way more than twenty dollars of value per month out of the A list. Yeah. 
I but, feel like I'm uh, robbing AMC yeah. every time I use a list. Honestly, <laughs> I, I so I'll just say this: the, the 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 email concludes by saying again another another uh, uh, haymaker to MoviePass. Uh, we will fully honor our. Uh, so, looking ahead, we continue to believe you are entitled to know what you can expect from us with reliability and predictability. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Accordingly, we intend to run a list with transparency and clarity. So then they talk about promising to uh, to honor your twelve month uh, uh, you know commitment for price. They say today we are also hereby announcing hereby hereby mm-hmm. also I do declare hereby <laughs> also. We are announcing that we will never change your program prices or benefits without giving you at least 90 days advance notice. That's pretty nice, actually. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, but I I have to admit, okay, so a lot of this, okay, fine. Uh, I am not encouraged that four months in, the price is already going up. Yeah. And and three months is the only head uh, lead time I get to know that it's going to continue to go up. So (laughs) this is... You know, this is uh, – it does not bode well, I think, for this remaining like a steal. The, I A-list, feel like the, the A-list adventure is maybe may coming to a close soon. Right. It, uh, it, it is uh, – it, the potential for it to just spiral out of control three yeah. months at a time is uh, right there. I mean get, get, at this rate, give it a couple of years before it's like really, really bad. I don't know. For me personally, like don't tell AMC this, guys, but I, I would pay over $30 a month for this mm. service because I definitely get that within a week of using A-List. So. Yeah, I mean but you there see like that. a couple Dolby screenings, you've already paid for it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I Dolby think... screening in my in New York is like $24 <laughs> and that's not I, 3D. Yeah, I, You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, comparisons in my mind and, and I do that – you do that little mental gymnastics where it's mm-hmm. like, OK, well, if I literally see just one movie a, a week – as long as it stays below the price I would pay for one movie a week, then I'm uh, I'm ahead of the game here. Yeah. But I also think back to things like being a Southern Californian, things like the Disneyland season pass, which started out as a real deal, and now is is you literally have to like take a down payment, you know, mortgage your house in order to uh and you have to like go every week to like make it worth it right yeah you have to you have to live at disneyland to make it pay off you have to like and and there's sublet. still like blackout dates you know they're still like well do you want to come here on the weekend oh that's gonna cost you buddy how many times do people want to go to disneyland like they, they don't change how they don't change things that often no it's not about changing it's things it's about you know uh, like Peter dreams. Serretta, editor-in-chief of Slash.com, go goes yeah. to Disneyland like every other week, I think. And yeah, I mean, it's basically same. like a mall. You know, it's like – think of it like right. going to the mall. You know what I mean? Um, for, the yeah. worst for people, mall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, I do think that that's a, that is a, you know, a comparable kind of experience where these things that start out to be real uh, rewards for people that want to do it a lot sure. uh, quickly become le- – you know, the – the value proposition changes, you know, yeah, very yeah. quickly. Now, it, there is a potential for danger, and I'm always going to be aware of that. People do complain that we should have movie pass and praise this way too much. So I do want to say, like, um, yeah, it's it, I'm well aware this could all tumble and fail. Right now, this just works really well for me. I think for anybody in a big city, it's a good deal. Yeah, yeah. I, I have no issues with movie pass as a concept. I just think like. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I may, I may or may not work for a company that prizes uh, customer experience, and uh, you know, to me, seeing what, how MoviePass is treating their customers, it like broke customer trust. What they did, and 
that's the thing that I found so upsetting about MoviePass is not necessarily the idea of like a low monthly rate for movies. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like two beefs with this email. First of all, I think the price increases so far are really reasonable. But point number one, I think framing like the bullet point says we are holding the line on pricing, which is uh, like at best deceptive and at worst a lie in terms of yeah. like how they're <laughs> yeah. framing the email. You know, yeah, we're holding the line. We're just stretching it a little. <laughs> the line, we move. We're holding moving. They're holding the line and they're moving <laughs> yeah. the line while holding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But yeah. we're holding on to it. The posts are in the same place. <laughs> the line is just a little forward. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so yeah, that, the, that, going up in price four months after it launches. It just feels. To, to be fair, the price is not going up till 2019. They're just announcing right. it now, right? That's that's a good point. That's a yeah. good point. Um, but and also, like, if you signed up, you know, you have the full year commitment. If you, I think, if you sign up before Ju- January of 2019, you you still get a full year of that twenty dollars price. So, um, better get in on that a list soon if you want in on that twenty dollars per month. But yeah, I agree with Jeff. Like the fact that they're raising the price this far in, especially because. In their initial announcement, they were saying like this is um, th- these prices are sustainable. Like this, they're going for something that's sustainable. Yeah, um, they weren't quite sustainable. It seems so. Is this new price sustainable, or is it just like, hey, we're going to put this on? Like now that MoviePass has basically been obliterated, we're going to like keep raising this every you know six months or whatever. Um, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. Like they gave it a quarter, right? They gave it a fiscal quarter, basically. Yeah. And based on the data that they saw, you know, went up a little. Yeah. The, I guess the question is, how often will they be doing exactly. this? Maybe exactly. an annual thing. I, I hope think this price annual. increase is totally reasonable. I think like twenty-two dollars yeah. a month, no big deal. Twenty-four bucks for you guys, whatever. It's no skin <laughs> off my back. Um, <laughs> but uh, if it goes higher than that in the future, like then. Uh, yeah, after thir- after above thirty bucks, it's really gonna be like okay. I gotta start questioning this. You know, I gotta start questioning. Li- I I have to start. I mean, putting- for us, like if you're still going to the theater for this show, even <laughs> like it's it, it will be worth it for a while for yeah. us. Like no, uh, no matter how high they raise the price. Fair but. enough. I guess if you're a slash filmcast yeah. uh, uh, host or listener. Yeah. Who for us crazy people, <laughs> then it'll but I also be think it that it, if you're a slash yeah. filmcast supporter at the rate of two dollars per month, maybe you should bump that up to three dollars per month. I'm just saying. <laughs> Wait for the email, guys. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you about the valuable opportunities we're yeah. going to offer you. All right. Well, thanks for listening to us rant about AMC Stubbs A list. We put it in the after dark this time, so you wouldn't have to listen if you didn't want to. Nobody uh, listens to these. Nobody listens yeah, to these. That's good. We'll, we'll see you guys yeah. next week. This is Acast recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Who exploded Vivian Stone? Was it Screen Hunk McSalad? Mother's Digest called me dependably erotic. Leading Lady Joanna Shoebags. Oh, you call me dramatic again, I will die! First-time director Wallace Byrne-Matravers. I think I'll just keep my clothes on for now. Assistant director Laura Sidesalad. If I can help you direct this film, I can certainly help direct your winkle. Technician James Wigington. You've got a funny way of addressing a man holding a power drill. Or someone else entirely. Listen in to find out... Who exploded Vivian Stone? Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.